Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bharat Law Podcast. I'm your host, Sara Kazmi. Today's episode is on the topic of competition law, and my guest for the show is Dr. Amber Dar, who's a lecturer in competition law at University of Manchester and a senior research fellow at the UCL Center for Law, Economics, and Society. Uh, Dr. Amber is also a qualified barrister and advocate of the Supreme Court of Pakistan, and she completed her PhD from UCL Laws in 2018, in which she compared the adoption of competition laws in India and Pakistan. Uh, she's also published on competition law issues in leading international publications, and her monograph uh, called Competition Law in South Asia, Diffusion and Transfer, has also been published by uh, Cambridge University Press in February this year. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Amber, for joining. Uh, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into the subject, I would love for you to take us through your career path. You know, since you qualified as a lawyer, you do have that unique background of having the experience as a lawyer, but then going into the academic side as well. Right. Well, it's a fairly long story, but I'll give you a short version. So I qualified as a barrister in um, from Lincoln's Inn. And after that, I returned to Pakistan and I started working with Mr. Maktoum Ali Khan, who later became the attorney general as well. Uh, I worked with him for, that's where I did my pupillage. Um, and I have to say, everything good I learned, I learned from him. Um, I had done some legal internships before that, but really that was, you know, the baptism by fire, as they say. Um, so after working with him for a few, few years, I joined Mr. Fakhruddin Ibrahim uh, as a senior associate. And at, during that period, I was headhunted by the Security and Exchange Commission of Pakistan. Um, and I moved to Islamabad to serve as the executive director of law uh, at the SECP um, for two years. Um, and while I was working there, I was approached by Heather Mota and company Karachi to join them as a partner. And it seemed like a very nice thing to do to return to practice, which I did miss. I, I The experience with the regulator was invaluable and it clearly informs my research today, but I missed the buzz of practice and I wanted to get back. So when I was offered a partnership, uh, I was not going to say no. Uh, but during that time, I mean, I was also getting ready to uh, be enrolled as an advocate of the Supreme Court of Pakistan and, and, and interacting quite extensively with the Supreme Court of Pakistan because I had moved to Islamabad to set up the um, Heather Motan Company's Islamabad office. Um, so I think I sort of saw what the profession would look like for me going forward because I, I was meeting with so many judges of the Supreme Court and you know, I kind of imagined myself becoming a senior lawyer. I imagined myself becoming a judge, perhaps, because there was a buzz in those days that, you know, in time you will be asked to be a judge. And I thought, no, that's not what I want for myself. Um, I realized I had the academic bug was alive and and thriving in me. I, I, I had started writing a lot of columns in uh, newspapers around that time, which was my really the only time I got to explore issues, uh, you know, in a sort of a balanced perspective rather than always preparing a case to win an argument. And I think I really, something clicked uh, uh, in place for me. And um, I, I thought I'd return to academia briefly. Um, initially, the thought was just to come for a master's because, you know, I was a barrister. I, I had a, a degree in literature and economics and I'd done law as a postgraduate course, but not, I didn't have the master's. So I thought, oh, I'll just go and do a master's for a year. And um uh, I was enrolled at the PhD program. Uh, it, that's that's a story for another time, but, yeah. but that was also quite by chance uh, that I found myself, instead of in a master's program, I found myself in a PhD program. Honestly, I didn't understand what I was getting into. Um, I did not even fully appreciate what a wonderful faculty UCL was or uh, how privileged I was to be part of it. Uh, but as I progressed on that journey of the PhD, I think it really changed me. Um, and that ego that a lawyer has um, and that desire to win, I, I discovered there was an even more interesting way of uh, being and engaging with the law, uh, and that is the academic uh, way. Um, and um, once I was done with the PhD, I didn't want to return to practice. I think there was a very high expectations from everybody I know that I would return to Pakistan and and join practice again. Yeah. But you know, I, I felt I'd earned I'd, I'd achieved something in that context. You know, I'd, I had um, 
you know, I had a good reputation as a lawyer. I had become an advocate of the Supreme Court. Uh, when I became an advocate of the Supreme Court in 2014, I was, what, number 110 of women lawyers ever. Uh, so, you know, it was still felt like a big deal. I know in 10 years, things have changed a lot. But in 10 years ago, it still felt like a big achievement. Um, I knew all the Supreme Court judges, you know, so in a, in a sense, maybe wrongly, I felt I'd seen the entire gamut of the profession and there was nothing new for me. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll I'll stay here and teach and write. And now I have a, I'm a published author and I'm very excited about that. That's, a, you know, some, a totally different dimension. Um, and that's what I do. I keep an eye, a little, a sort of a somewhat of an eye on what's happening in Pakistan. I continue to write in Dawn. Uh, so you'll see my columns on a, well, intermittently, not very regularly, but whenever I get a chance, I'll, I'll write something. Um, so I, I don't, I haven't turned my back on the Pakistani legal system, but I'm no longer practicing in it. And and how come um, you focused in on competition law? So that's really a, it's a story I actually write in my book. My preface starts with that very story. Um, I was uh, practicing um, at, you know, I was a junior well, not junior, sorry, I was a junior partner at the time the competition law was enacted in 2007, uh, the competition ordinance rather was uh, promulgated. And, you know, everybody was really sort of confused by what it, what it was. And I was working with Heather Mota and Co. And I had a degree in economics. I had an undergraduate in economics and literature. So I think I was amongst the people who kind of had some understanding of what antitrust or competition was. So in my law firm, uh, three of us, in fact, you'll find this article in Corporate Law Decisions. It was published in, I think, 2008, January. So it was co-authored by myself, uh, Josem Heather Mota, who was the senior partner at um, Heather Mota and Co. And Justice Muni Bakhtar now, who was one of my co-authors. And we we wrote, we basically explored what this competition commission, competition ordinance was about. And we we wrote the constitutional objections to it. We wrote the economic objections to it. That article actually became a template for a lot of the petitions that were then filed uh, challenging the validity of the competition ordinance. So we were very much at the forefront of that kind of, you know, corporate lawyer, constitutional lawyer sort of community that was challenging this new law that had come about. And there was one case in the, which was the cement cartel case. Um, it, it's recently been decided in, I think, 2001, uh, the Lahore High Court finally passed a judgment. So this, I'm talking about 2011, when I was appearing in this case in Pakistan. And I realized something quite unusual. You know, we always talk about delays in courts. But what I noticed that there was sort of this kind of lack of understanding of the competition ordinance. People just didn't want to deal with it. Um, and there were many constitutional reasons for it. It had been, you know, the, and I don't want to go into that long history, but I do write about it in my, I start my story of competition law with that case. And, you know, I left, uh, I, I was almost thinking of leaving the country and the case has, was still ongoing, right? So it just never, it things were not going anywhere. And the frustration I felt at that time made me question why the competition law was you know, despite all good intentions of adopting it and instantly enforcing it, the law just wasn't progressing. So the the objectives for which it had been brought into the country were nowhere close to being realized. And, you know, across the border, one looked across the border at, at India and they had adopted the law almost simultaneously. It had not had quite the grand start that we had had, uh, but it was progressing uh, smoothly. So I think that question was very fresh in my mind. Um, when I joined my PhD. And much as I write about competition law, there is a bigger story I explore in my research, which is when countries borrow economic laws and the way they borrow these laws, you know, do they debate? Do they do they just pass an executive order, which we will call in our language, we'll call it an ordinance. You know, what is, is that an obstacle in their subsequent enforcement? Uh, so what are the factors, what are the political and economic factors that get in the way of law enforcement? Uh, it's not just the problem of law enforcement authorities. It's also the way the parliament and the executive and the judiciary engages with these laws in the process of adoption. So, yes, I write about competition because that was really present in my mind uh, when I started my PhD. But there is the bigger story of uh, economic laws in Pakistan, which I explore. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's quite an impressive profile. I mean, I, I wasn't aware that you also had 
you know, that much of experience practicing as a lawyer. I thought maybe tried it for a little bit and then straight into, um, but but really that's very impressive. I identify myself fully as a lawyer, by the way. I, yeah. I think it's harder for me to think of myself as an academic. I still think of myself very much as a barrister and Absolutely. Uh, totally at home in that persona. So just to put things in in context for you, um, for this podcast, I mean, this is mainly for lawyers and law students. And the reason I wanted to do, you know, an episode on competition law is because it is a common practice area, uh, not just in Pakistan, but obviously, you know, everywhere else. And so the idea is hopefully that the discussion would benefit those that maybe want to understand the scope of it and develop it, um, you know, as a practice area. So so let's begin by you outlining what is competition law, or sometimes it's referred to as antitrust, generally, and then maybe perhaps from the perspective of Pakistan specifically. Of course. So I just want to commend you for doing this, because I absolutely agree that competition is a is a is an important practice area. If anything, I think Pakistan is lagging behind. It's not sort of harnessing the potential. So I'm sure your podcast will make an important contribution to that. So excellent work. So what is competition law? Uh, first of all, competition law is the, la- the, the language of the EU. Uh, that's where it's referred to as the competition law. And antitrust is the language of the US. Um, they're almost similar. They're not identical, but they're almost similar. Um, what these laws are designed to do is, in a nutshell, to prevent the abuse of power in economies by big players. Now the big player can be a single player, like one big you know, dominant company that holds more than 40% of the market share or 50% of the market share of that particular product. So let's say if there's a cement company that's the biggest seller and we won't take names. Um, you may think of a pharmaceutical company or a sugar company that's very, very big in a particular area. So that's th- that kind of, when, when a player becomes that big, uh, it can actually dictate terms in the market, and it can also then dictate terms to consumers. Um, and it can push up, push up competitors out of business. Now, sometimes that clear is not a single person, it is two, two or three or four or five companies, you know, joining in this nefarious cartel agreement and saying, well, you know what, we'll fix prices, or we will um, share the market and you supply to Faisalabad and I will supply to Islamabad, and you know, we'll not get in each other's way. And again, who suffers? The consumer suffers. Uh, And also other people who are trying to break into the market find it difficult to, you know, uh, to to gain access to the market. So competition law basically comes in to correct these market distortions. You know, it's, it's what we call a reactive law. So it's not a law that's creating competition in the market. The, it, it operates on the assumption that a market that's left alone will find its balance. Uh, it will, you know, through the forces of supply and demand, it will find its balance. Um, but rather it comes in if it, if it observes, uh, you know, something amiss in terms of some kind of abuse of power or some kind of cartelization or, you know, some other kind of agreement that it, it watches with concern, then the competition law will go in, it will investigate um, and it will it will uh, pass an order. And that's pretty much the model on which the Pakistani competition law is also based. So the Pakistani competition uh, law has gone through several lives. Uh, what we have today is the Pakistan Competition Act of 2010, but that's the fourth iteration of the law. Um, I won't go into the other three. Um, so the Pakistani competition law has the Three core areas, I I mentioned anti-competitive agreements, as I said, cartels, they're also known as anti-competitive agreements. The law says they're absolutely prohibited. Um, And if you enter into them, they will be struck down. But, you know, then there's a lot of proof required whether what is an agreement, what kind of agreement it is. So if the agreement is discovered, it will be declared to be void. Uh, The law also has a provision on abuse of dominance, which is a single market player dictating terms in the market. Um, That's uh, Section 3 of the the Competition Act. And it says if you have more than 40% market share of... So every product will have its own market, right? Cement will have its own market and fertilizer will have its own market. They're not the same market. So there's a big chunk of work that we do around defining markets as well. Um, So if you have 40% market share, then you are deemed to be dominant. 
being dominant is not a problem, but if you do something to abuse your dominance, that's a problem. So for instance, you know, just if you're a big person, it's not a problem, but if you're a big person and a bully, that's a problem, right? Uh, and in terms of agreements, you might say, you know, being friends is not a problem, but if friends gang up and beat somebody else up, then that's a problem, right? So uh, abuse of dominance, the Pakistani Competition Act looks at that as well. And then it also looks at mergers and acquisitions. Now, mergers and acquisitions are a different kind of activity. They're like a, 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 a sort of a pre, it's a notification system. Every time there's a merger in the, in the country, you have to notify it. If it's above a certain threshold, you have to notify the commission. The reason for that is that the commission is monitoring mergers to see whether there might be a creation of a dominant position. You know, so it's more preemptive in that sense. Um, so whilst you have anti-competitive agreements and abusive dominance, you come in after the fact, after something has gone wrong. Mergers is the one situation in which you can come in before some, anything's happened. The difficulty with mergers, of course, is that you have to project into the future. So it's a little bit of fortune telling, you know, you have to imagine what the world would look like if this merger went through. And competition authorities um, try their best to do it, but it's not a foolproof exercise. The area in which the Pakistani competition authority is a little bit different from the traditional EU model is the provision on deceptive marketing practices. Now, deceptive marketing practices under Section 10, I believe, of the Competition Act uh, 2010 is a consumer protection provision. It's not a mainstream competition provision at all. But there's nothing uh, wrong with competition and consumer protection uh, issues to be joined in a single statute. For instance, the US model uh, does that. They also combine consumer and competition uh, protection issues in one statute. Before we move on from this question, I just want to emphasize that it might look like the, that the Competition Act is, is a consumer protection legislation, but it isn't. And the core difference is that the consumer protection law, such as we have in certain provinces, it's a, it's a provincial subject, we don't have it everywhere in Pakistan, that looks at individual transactions between customers and sellers. And the harm that they're trying to redress is the harm that an individual consumer suffers uh, due to a you know, faulty product or whatever. In competition, what you're looking at is the effect on competition. You know, what, what is happening to the structure of the market? What is happening to uh, the balance in the market or the ability of other people to compete? So whilst consumers will eventually benefit and, and we, we do look at how consumers will be affected by the changes in the structure in the market. Consumers are not the starting point or the or, or even the ending point, really, of this inquiry. So, so just to, uh, consumer uh, competition looks at structure, market structures, whereas consumer protection laws uh, look at individual transactions. And that's a very big difference between them. And also just one last point on this, that the Competition Act is anchored in economics. So how do you decide something is anti-competitive? It's not a rule that you can apply. You don't say, oh, if it has A, B, and C qualities, it will automatically be. I mean, I'm, I'm being very, very uh, uh, sort of uh, summarizing it very, very much for, for the podcast. But um, there are certain very, very egregious agreements that you can say, okay, these are absolutely, if you entered into them, they're anti-competitive, no questions asked. But for, for a majority of agreements, you need economic analysis. Now, Pakistan, like a lot of developing countries, emerging economies, is applying its competition law more as a rule-based system than an economic-based system. There's nothing wrong with that, but eventually we have to understand that you have to move towards the economics. And if you become too rule-based or remain too rule-based, then you might even hamper uh, legit, legitimate business activities, which don't have an anti-competitive effect. First of all, I think it's great that you also talked about consumer protection, because that's literally I was thinking that I'm like, you know, is there an overlap between, you know, consumer protection laws? So, you know, I think it's good you cleared that out. So when it comes to enforcement, you mentioned Competition Commission of Pakistan. Are they the only regulatory authority? They also do like investigation and penalty yeah. enforcement, or is there somebody else that also steps in? 
Right. So again, really interesting question. Uh, so the Competition Commission of Pakistan, the CCP, which is based in Islamabad, is what we call the first tier competition authority. So that's where direct competition complaints will begin. And it is what we also call a monistic authority. So it has the, you know, the investigative, adjud adjudicatory and sanctioning functions within them. Okay. Now, again, that is a model that is followed in other countries in the world. So it might look uh, unusual, but it isn't. And it is followed. And this is very much the model of uh, monistic uh, competition. In fact, the EU commission is very much like this as well. Uh, if there's an appeal against the order of the competition commission, that goes to the competition appellate tribunal, which is comprised of um, competition experts as well as judges. So it has it brings in that sort of a you know, broader perspective. Uh, appeal from the order of a competition appellate tribunal will lie to the Supreme Court of Pakistan. Okay, so this is the Supreme Court of Pakistan sitting in its comp competition appellate jurisdiction. And, you know, recently the Supreme Court has passed two orders in its Supreme, in its, uh, in, uh, regarding competition law. So I, I haven't checked what jurisdiction they've done it in. Is it the writ jurisdiction or the appellate? But clearly the Supreme Court can exercise both jurisdictions on these matters. Uh, so that is what I call the linear trajectory. You know, there's the Competition Commission, the, the Competition Appellate Tribunal and the Supreme Court. It looks quite neat. But there's something else going on on the side as well. So you can also have writ petitions filed before the High Court from orders or even show cause notices of the Commission. And in fact, that was the standard uh, operating procedure for that uh, was met, uh, that all the competition show cause notices met uh, from between 2007 and 2010. You, they issued a show cause notice, they barely passed an order, and it was challenged in writ uh, in, in the high courts. So once you go in the writ jurisdiction, then that has its own pathway. You know, you can go to writ and then the order gets appealed to the Supreme Court writ jurisdiction. So we've been stuck in that parallel pathway. And then there's a third uh, area also, which is sector regulators. So for instance, the uh, Pakistan Telecommunication Authority has the power to check significant market power within the telecom industry. And I think the other sector regulators, Energy, Ogra, they, they have some of these powers as well. In fact, there's some kind of a, some tussle between state bank and um, competition authorities as well that, you know, who has regulatory power in certain areas. But I think that's a fine balancing act. Um, yeah. And and they they look to each other, uh, to, they, they they sort it out uh, amongst each other. But I think when it comes to core competition concerns, they are with the Competition Commission of Pakistan, and it also has an advocacy function. So it 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 has the job to actually create greater awareness about competition. Uh, and I think what we are doing today is not that we've been hired by the Competition Commission to do it, but yeah. also uh, it's part of the advocacy initiative. Okay, and I want to follow up uh, with a couple of questions, but in the context of role of competition lawyers. So you mentioned a few issues like anti-competitive agreements, abuse of dominant position. I think you also talked about uh, getting clearance, uh, you know, during mergers and acquisitions. So let's dive, you know, in, in detail on that. Exactly what would a competition lawyer do? What are some of the issues that they're advising on? Are they advising companies, individuals? How does it work? Okay, so I think um, the various roles that a competition lawyer can play, I have to say they're all really exciting. And uh, I think the deeper you go into them, the more exciting they become. So, you know, the, you don't have to think of it as a rubber stamping uh, exercise at all. So let's say you can, you know, if you're an in-house counsel uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a big corporation, let's pick Telenor for lack of a better, I don't know why it's coming. It used to be one of my clients back in the day. Let's just pick Telenor, you're in an in-house counsel. So you may vet all their agreements that they're entering into. I, I remember back in the day, there was an infrastructure agreement that was being negotiated between Telenor, Jazz, and I think Warid used to be there in 2010 as well. And because they were entering into an agreement, there was a concern that would this be anti-competitive. Uh, so, so, you know, that's a really exciting area to be in. You, you can examine all their mergers to see what kind of competition impact might they might have. Uh, you will also check to see whether it creates a, a dominant position. So I think there's an in-house role that a lawyer, which is I call the preemptive uh, role, which is very, very important. And, and of course, that's an advisory capacity. You will give advice to your, you know, your company 
of course, companies very often go to corporate councils as well, specialists, which I was back in the day when I was practicing in Pakistan, they would have come to me for competition advice and I would have given them uh, this advice. So that's the advisory capacity. Then when it comes to um, anti-competitive agreements and abuse of dominant position, let's say the competition commission brings a case against you, then you have an even more exciting role of actually appearing before the competition commission and pleading that case or defending that case. And I say that's exciting because like I said a little while ago, it's different from a lot of the other work that lawyers do in the sense that it's not purely law-based. You have to have an understanding of markets. You have to have an understanding of the underlying economics. You have to have an understanding of the commercial relationships. So I find it really interesting. And um, it's a great area to really understand how a particular sector operates in the country. I mean, I remember working on the sugar cartel or the, you know, the fertilizer cartel. And I learned so much about that particular sector. I, I still remember it. I could give a mini talk on cement and, and fertilizer as well, uh, just from having done that work. So I think that's and and the the competition commission at present uh, runs it very much like a court case. So you know you will have you will file all the documents, you will file a written statement, you will file rejoinders, you will file affidavits. I'm not sure it has to be done like that, but that's the way it is done. Uh, and uh, you know, as a as a as a traditionally trained lawyer, that skill if you can bring that skill, you will definitely need it to argue cases. Cases, of course, can also be brought before um, the courts. You can be in uh, defending your client uh, or, 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 or rather filing petitions on behalf of your client um, uh, in courts or uh, in the high courts or the Supreme Court. You can also be a competition commission lawyer, which is another very exciting area to be in. You know? And I, I think a lot of our law graduates from LUMS, because um, and I, unfortunately, I mean, I don't know where your base, Sarah, but I think it's uh, the the Karachi lawyers kind of miss out on that just because they're so far away and the salaries need to be really, really good for us to move to Islamabad and to do yeah. the work. Uh, but I think that that's a very exciting area to work in. And um, uh, really, I think it's um, a, a bit biased of me to say that, but I would say the top minds would go into uh, this area. And like I said, it's a little bit biased of me to say that, but uh, I think it's because that it brings that you know sort of unique interplay of um, economics and law. Uh, and, and at the very least, I think you're a top mind that you have to be open to economics. I don't I don't know if there's any real economics that's required you're required to know, but you have to be open to economic terminology at the very least. And you know, every lawyer is not up for that. So so that's one uh, one sort of the lit litigational area. And then of course you have mergers and acquisitions. That's a little bit more uh, what we would call uh, a solicitor's uh, style work. So more more paperwork, more preparing briefs, um, providing rationale, providing justifications, making sure that you're providing the right information to the competition commission so that it can assess the quality of your merger. I remember a very exciting case I worked on, which was, um, there was I won't take names, but there was going to be a merger in the in the fertilizer industry, and we were we were arguing that if this merger doesn't go through, this particular firm will fail anyway, and competition will go down. And in fact, the merger is saving the firm. It wasn't approved, but that is the kind of work that you know you would do as a as a merger lawyer as well. So you people can specialize. I think you can actually prefer to if you prefer mergers and that kind of work, you can specialize in that. And if you prefer the sort of litigation side of things, there's a lot of scope. Uh, but it's a deep field. I think what is really interesting about it is that it doesn't run on, uh, you know, the principles of contract or um, or any other law that I can think of in Pakistan. It very much has its own juris uh, jurisprudence, its own language, its own rationale. So I think you really have to enter the field to understand what the rationale is and, and how it operates. So quite specialist, and really. Yeah, and it definitely seems that, you know, it has like wide reaching impact on various sectors. You mentioned a few, you know, telecom or pharmaceutical, um, you know, can you give other examples of industries that you think are particularly affected by competition law regulation? Any specific challenges or issues that you think arise or it kind of covers anything and everything? Well, it almost covers anything and everything. Okay. Um, I think that, um, in fact, food is a very big area that is okay. uh, you know, prone to uh, anti-competitive practices. And given that we are, you know, for f whether you, we style ourselves as a developing country or an emerging economy, I prefer emerging economy because there's more hope in that expression. Yeah. Um, 
you know, those are the, the sectors that are closer to consumers, closest to consumers, in my view, are the more important ones that we should be. Uh, you know, you can also bring claim, complaints, by the way, to the Competition Commission, right? So that's another area which can, you can be more proactive as a lawyer. And I do remember one case in which we were the complainants uh, because, uh, you know, the com commission couldn't, um, can't always be fact-finding in every area. So it was, you know, you can bring complaints if you, if you come across, and anybody can complain, but you just have to be justify it once you complain then the commission will uh, conduct an inquiry if it, if it feels it's it has you know intrinsic value so i think there is really uh, no sector that is um, beyond the remit of uh, competition law but i think what is important and what is probably not happened hasn't happened so far at least i can't see a pattern uh, it may have happened i don't want to say the competition commission has not thought about it i don't see a pattern in their work which is that has there there, there hasn't been clear cut priority setting so i feel like they've picked up cases as and when they've found them and where they've found them but there's not been this clear sort of priority setting as to what is most critical for the economy. So if you pick up the kind of uh, subject areas they've taken, they've gone to uh, chartered accountants, they've gone to universities, they've gone to cement, pharmaceuticals, um, um, you know, fertilizers, they've gone for a lot of the big fish. Um, it's also the big fish that has documentation. Surprisingly, they left sugar alone, right? I, again, don't know why, right? I don't want to get into... I heard there was a good reason why they didn't do sugar, but I mean, we could get into the political economy of why you pick sugar, but sugar should have been done. Sugar was clearly, you know, there was enough, um, enough movement in the market to suggest that this might be a cartel. So whenever prices go up, that's a very big indicator that something's afoot. Prices can either go up for genuine economic reasons or prices can go up because people have decided to push up the prices and uh, you know take the profits. So prices going up is the single biggest uh, alarm bell uh, or should be at the very least. I in fact did a sector study and I think the, so when I was writing my book, I looked at the sectors that the Competition Commission of Pakistan had uh, investigated and they've gone into about 14, 15 sectors. So has India. Interesting, India, one of the biggest sectors, can you guess one of their biggest sectors that they've, wild guess? I don't Bollywood. Know. Oh my God, I wouldn't have thought of that. Nope, nobody would. Absolutely the biggest. I mean, some of the biggest cases of anti-competitive behavior are between uh, producers and distributors of films and distributors and cinema houses. So it is such a big industry. And that should give the sense that even media houses can be um, behaving anti-competitively. And also, what about uh, like online markets? Obviously, there's like growing digital platforms. You know, how does competition law address issues related to online markets or tech giants? So that's such an important question. Um, and obviously, we that is where the Western competition law, it's, I, I shouldn't even say moving, I think it has moved, you know, it has, completely, I mean, language, the conversations we have here are all about digital economy. And uh, the problem with digital economy is it is more difficult to prove agreements and collusion. Uh, I mean, as it is, it's difficult to prove agreements between competitors, because they're not going to write it down and put it in a safe, you know, it's usually a nod or or there's an association, you know, like a like a producer's association. That's how you figure out there was a cartel. That's what they did in cement or textile, for instance. But tech is clearly a, a very challenging area. A tech raises other concerns as well, because um, all these tech uh, digital platforms, or we call them multi-sided platforms, they also aggregate data. And they, when you aggregate data, you enhance even greater market power. So it's one thing is to have uh, you know, for instance, there was a fa um, uh, Facebook Instagram merger. Instagram was bought for free, but they gained 30, I don't know, million users from it, which was the real cost of the transaction. So I think the it digitalization, digital economy makes it all the more challenging to understand the implications of, um, you know, collusion and product pricing. For instance, a lot of the platforms that we use are free to use to consumers. 
right? So we might say, oh, but there is no consumer harm then. Remember I said price is the biggest indicator, but these are zero price products. So how do we decide where the harm is? So I think competition law is now getting into an even more creative space. And in fact, as we speak, it's undergoing a massive change. It hasn't, I don't know where it will end, but um, uh, online, I mean, the, the law is already in place in the EU, for instance, we don't, we'll have to test it out to see how well it works. So there are laws, there are regulations for online distribution systems. There are all regulations for calculating market shares for digital platforms. There there are uh, ways of looking at zero price products. When it's a zero price product, how do you decide somebody is abusing their dominance? So a lot of these issues are coming up. The Pakistani Competition Commission hasn't quite ventured, ventured in that space yet, right? Uh, India has. So I think India is again... You and uh, India is just bigger and has more um, platforms actually operating there. I think we are in a mindset where we are really welcoming platforms because we think that they're bringing economic opportunity for us. And yes, they are. I don't want to deny that they are, but um, I think we it might be a while before we realize the the risks and costs for competition that are inherent in these platforms. I mean, for instance, what might happen to local competition? We don't just don't know yet. And I think the one decision I've read, which was the Uber merger decision, um, Uber was not sanctioned in Pakistan because the idea was that this is foreign direct investment and it should be encouraged. So those are the kind of policy decisions that you know are taken at a government level and then the competition authority kind of takes a backseat. But definitely the area to watch. Algorithms, digital economy, multi-sided platforms, data privacy, all of this absolutely the space to watch and can you also explain how competition law it intersects with uh in international trade and commerce what are some of maybe some recent cases or developments uh you know when we talk about cross-border competition law issues okay that's a big question and i think to talk about cross-border competition issues is complex because you have to also understand where you are in relation to these cross-border dynamics. So for instance, if we're talking about Pakistan, we are not the ones running the big multinationals, right? We are the ones who are supplying raw materials to multinationals. So if you imagine a supply chain, we are either providing labor or we're providing um, um, you know, um, raw materials. So if you imagine it as a supply chain, we're at the bottom off the chain. So we are not really in a position to to even determine the dynamic of competition over there. If anything, the more competition there is, let's say internationally, by competition, I mean, let's say there's several big multinationals in, let's imagine textiles, right? There's Gap and H&M and I don't know, uh, Zara, they're all competing for a market in say London, right? How will they compete? By cutting down their prices, right? That's how people compete. Bring the cost down and bring the price down. What, how, what is the best way to bring the price down is push it down the supply chain, right? Just pay less to everybody. So when we are at the bottom, we actually get shafted many, many times by being at that bottom. Um, you remember the big Nas Plaza case, for instance, in Bangladesh, which was uh, many years ago. But I think there's so many stories that begin with that because it was such an eye opener. That was actually a case of cheap labor, wasn't it? So it was why was why were these American companies working out of Rana Plaza or, Na, or Nas Plaza? I forget the name in um, in in Bangladesh is because that was they could run sweatshops there without there was not enough labor legislation. So I think when we are talking about inviting multinationals in and we are excited about what they're bringing, we are not fully mindful of you know what role we are playing. Having said that, a lot of the health and safety regulations that have come into Pakistan, a lot of the labor regulations that have come into Pakistan have also come through multinationals. So it is, it is, it is not a doom and gloom scenario, but it is a scenario which we have to enter in a in a well-informed way. And I don't think we do. So I think international trade is very much designed on the underpinnings of competition. In fact, just a, a bit of history that a lot of these institutions of 
global economic institutions were born out of World War II. And that is when, you know, the empire had gone away and they needed other ways of connecting economically. And one of the ways that was, let's have free trade and free competition. If you have free trade, it's not the developing world that was going to stand up and create the big multinationals. The only way they might have been able to do it, and, and again, I talk about India because I think that is our neighbor and is such an interesting example. They didn't have free trade until 1991, right? They, they only liberalized their economy in 1991. So they adopted a different model, whereas we have been free trade uh, capitalist country from the very beginning, at least on the, on the surface. I mean, again, one needs to investigate the policies more holistically. But definitely competition is um, something that is, uh, you know, very much a free trade um, principle. And the reason why even we even have a competition law in Pakistan today uh, is well, largely because the WTO, we joined the WTO in 1995 and everybody joined the WTO in 1995, almost everybody. And the WTO at that time was thinking about an international competition law. And India got, India panicked. And India said they'll dictate a competition law for us. So we should go and start thinking of our own competition law. Pakistan also was worried, but Pakistan um, went to the WTO ministerial conference and said, we do need to think about our, remember both countries have monopolies and control ordinances. One, we had the 1970 and India had the 1969. So both those laws were there, they were toothless. Nothing was happening. So we have monopoly control from the very beginning. We just haven't, and our constitution says that we will have freedom of trade and article 18 of fundamental rights says, you know, we will yeah. not have monopolies restricting it. And yet what have we done to achieve, uh, to, to prevent that from happening? So Pakistan goes to the WTO ministerial conference and says, look, guys, help us. We need a new law. Just help us make one. And if you look at the two laws, you'll see the Pakistani law is very well drafted because it was drafted by the uh, firm of Jones Day based in Brussels. It was not drafted. Okay. Look. The Indian law is a bit clunky. It's written in that, you know, sort of Indian English uh, and I'm not saying it's perfect at all, but I think they at least spent some time. We we have a very elegantly written law, but it actually is not deeply informed by Pakistani thought process. Right. And, you know, you talk about India as well. Is that what your book is also about? I want to talk about that as well. Competition law in yeah, South Asia. Yes. Uh, and if you can also tell our audience how they can get their hands on it, if they're interested in. Yeah. Competition law in South Asia. Unfortunately, the South Asian edition has not been published yet. Um, so okay. if anybody wants to read a little bit about, you know, the history, the political economy of competition law, the enforcement experience of India and Pakistan, for instance, uh, I can tell you a little bit more about the sectors that I was telling you about. Uh, the legislation, you know, what, what are the implications, the you know, we talked about the um, appellate systems, the writs, all of it you can find here, but they can ask me for a for a chapter and I'm happy to send it to them. Uh, but the book is not at the moment available. You can order a PDF. Libraries, I think, will order. The IBA has a copy because I gave it to them. I mean, I had a book launch at the IBA. Um, okay. So they have a copy. And Lums, I couldn't go this time. So hopefully next time I'm there. Um, but yes, so the book actually covers um, eight South Asian countries. The PhD was on India and Pakistan, but the book is about, um, you know, Afghanistan has a draft competition law. Can you believe that? I find it very shocking that they have it. And India drafted it for them um, through, uh, the. I think they were working with DFID at that time. Pakistan, of course, we know has it since 2007, but had the monopoly control ordinance in since 1970. India has it since 2003, but they had the monopoly control since 1969. Sri Lanka has the Consumer Affairs Authority Act since 2003, uh, not been enforced. Nepal had tremendous political turmoil, but within a day before the king could have gave up his powers, they enacted a Competition Act 2007. So you really think, what's going on here? Bangladesh has the Competition Act 2012. Um, Bhutan, the tiny Bhutan, which has literally one sector, uh, has a competition policy 2014, which they then revised in 2020. So twice they've gone through this exercise. And, um, you know, you you really wondered, at least I wondered, and I, I hope that it's what you're thinking as well. You know, what, why are these countries getting, is this the biggest problem they have? You know, and you, you, 
And then to think that, you know, our lawyers are absolutely not keeping pace with this development, which is taking place at the IMF and the World Bank level. But we at the ground uh, grassroots level, we have no concept of what's going on. If we don't understand what's going on, how will we inform the process? You know, we always talk about bringing our own voice, but to bring your own voice to the table, you have to understand what's going on, right? It's not enough to say it's a good law, it's a bad law, it was brought in by the, I mean, yes, it was brought in by General Musharraf, but maybe he was, I mean, I'm not an apologist for him, but I'm just speaking for the law that maybe that was the only way we'd ever have this law, because look at what have we been able to go after the sugar cartel. So I think we have to understand the economics and the, the rationale for these laws and then appreciate why we need them and not just treat them as, you know, who brought them, their Western dictates or whatever, whatever the tropes we use to discuss them. I think, I mean, it sounds like there's way more potential that I initially thought, you know, when we started this conversation in this area, I think plenty of areas for lawyers to uh, explore. But just on a on a closing or on a parting note, any kind of tips or suggestions or advice that you have for young lawyers that, you know, want to pursue a career in this? What skills do you think are essential particularly in, in, in this area of the law or what career pathways would you recommend for those interested in this area? So I think probably the biggest education you can get in competition is to work with the commission itself. Uh, that would be an excellent training ground for young lawyers. And, and I think a very good way to understand things from the top. And I think once you once somebody has put in a couple of years there, they will be invaluable uh, to any corporate law firm in the country. And I think uh, that's quite a, usually quite a good way to uh, to get into the system, especially if you know people are, are living in those cities and they have access to it. I think more than skills, like I said earlier, you know you do need to have a little bit of that economic at least interest. I won't even so go so far as an understanding, but I think if you have an interest, the rest will follow. So to look at things not simply as, rules that need to be applied, but formulas that need to be solved. If that's a very crude way of putting it, but perhaps, you know, it's a, it's an equation. We need to put the elements in to see if it, if it fits and what, and you'll have different outcomes and different scenarios. Rules are easier. I think we become, so I, I would say one of the big skills I would like a lawyer to have is mental agility, which lawyers should have anyway, is mental agility. Yeah. Um, I think what is what I wish we did have is competition law courses in all our in all our, all our law schools. I know LUMS has uh, some competition law teaching, um, but I think it's that's about it really. I don't think it's taught, which is a shame. If I were in Pakistan, I would do much more to teach it. Um, and I do I do what I do in my own small way. I talk about it so much, uh, you know. And I think that's, so the the creation of awareness. And I think then if you have the interest, you know, the world's your oyster. Every, I mean, the, the one thing is that the, the commission exists. So the work is there. I mean, that's the funny bit. The work exists. They're low hanging fruit. It's, it's there for the picking. I think, how did I get into it? Simply by stepping up and saying, I can do it. You know, really. Yeah, but I... That. I think, you know, you also got into it at a time where it was it was kind of new. I'm sure there were like maybe even fewer lawyers that were, uh, you know, really interested or, you know, exploring it. So I think still very also... few lawyers interested in it. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we should. I mean, I, I would again say that, you know, what I see in India, for instance, across the border, because I work closely with them, uh, you know, there is a student-led podcast. They are just young students, uh, college students who've gotten together and um, they interview people on competition issues around the world. And they're just educating themselves, oh. but they've now become the leading, uh, you know, voice for, for competition issues. I'm on their advisory panel, so I advise them sometimes. Oh, nice. What's, what's it called? Uh, let me tell you. Or you could, or you could send me the link. I want to add that in the description. I think sure it's called um, in conversation podcast in uh, in conversation with IPR and competition law. I'll add that in the description. So for those that are listening, if they want to, you know, uh, check that out as well. I think that would be great. Yeah, every topic under the sun. I mean, there's a, what I do want to say is that competition law 
overlaps with digital economy, which we touched upon. It overlaps with labor law. You know, I mentioned that. It overlaps with environment and climate change because guess where big climate, anti-climate climate emissions come from? Big companies, right? And again, sometimes to drive down costs, companies may compromise on environmental uh, controls or sometimes they may pretend to have an environmental like greenwashing, you know, a, a sustainable agreement, which is actually the drive, they're using it as a cartel. So I think there's very interesting areas there. There's an overlap between competition and privacy law. There's an overlap between um, competition and food, human rights law. I mean, if you put competition in the center, there's no end to uh, the, the bits you can add on to it. Competition and corporate law, for instance, uh, something that we have in our company's ordinance, um, uh, common directorships uh, of companies, that can be a competition law concern because that's a roundabout way of getting an anti-competitive agreement. You just put your directors on the board and you have group companies and they can think alike. So, I mean, it's fascinating. And I know uh, the more the more I know, the less I know is the story because I, I really know when I'm talking to you, even I'm thinking, I know nothing. And, you know, technically I've written the book, but I, I there is so much to know and it's endless. It's, an, it's endless, it's important, it's valuable because everything takes place in a market. Everything. I mean, once you get that basic, fundamental idea that everything is operating in a market, whether you're selling services or, or goods or whatever, then the, the value of competition becomes uh, increasingly important. And, you know, you might, developing countries, emerging countries should stand up and say how much competition they need or want. At, I mean, I, I'm not a prophet for, you know, a, a competition saying, oh, it should, or, no, some of it, if I, for instance, when we talked about trade and I said, we're at the bottom end and we have our, our labor is getting, then do we really, are we suffering from the negative effects of competition? What recourse do we have? But these are things, these are conversations to get engaged in. Yeah, yeah. And before I let you go, uh, for our listeners that want to maybe get in touch with you, follow you, where are you active? Uh, LinkedIn is the best forum. Okay. Uh, you can add my handle because you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think especially for this kind of, uh, you know, conversation, that's probably the best. I am act a little bit active on Twitter, not too much. I think I've cut down my social okay. media usage, but you can reach out to me. I, I just want to say that, you know, I'm very happy to hear from people, but I'm not a magician. I can't do things for you that are not, you know, possible. So whatever is possible, I will do. But some people sometimes write to me and ask me for really impossible requests, like, I had an email saying, can you, can you enroll me on a PhD program? And, you know, I wish I had the oh. power, but I don't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, but always happy to, um, to spread the word about competition. And, you know, if there's something that if, if people want to have more conversations about this, absolutely happy to do it. Yeah. Great. Great. So um, I want to thank you once again uh, for taking the time out. I mean, I just noticed I I took, you know, like an entire hour almost. Um, so thank you so much. And it was a pleasure meeting you as well. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, for the questions. And um, I hope we spread the word, right? As you said, this is an area and uh, we know so little about it. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Leave a comment. If you have any detailed uh, feedback or suggestion, the email is in the description. And uh, don't forget to share with fellow lawyers and law students in your network.